good to see you guys. Well, we've reached uh, the end of a 28-week journey through the book of Romans. Uh, this is a letter that has deeply impacted my life. It impacted my life so deeply that one of my children is actually named Roman, right? Uh, and, and one of the reasons Megan and I named uh, Roman Roman is because of just the way that this letter had impacted us and changed our lives and uh, and, and it's just a, yeah, it's just a, it's just a sweet memory every time I call his name on how much God's word uh, means to our family. Um, we have a conviction at New City to handle the word of God in such a way that the Bible, which is God's inspired and eternal word, goes home with you. But not just goes home with you, but it goes home in your heart in a way that stirs up your affections and draws you to a love uh, of God. And so, um, you know, it's not about a specific message. It's certainly not about a messenger because God could use anyone to preach his word. But it's about you actually knowing God and being changed by his presence. So, so here at the end of the book of Romans, Paul pauses. And I love it because he humanizes the gospel for us for just a second. And he reminds us of the names and of the stories of the people that have impacted his own journey. And he stops to necessarily, he stops and says this. He says, listen, this whole thing is about people. Amen? This whole thing, the church, the gospel, the word of God, it's all about people. And, and he stops and he, and, he, and he says that to us. And we're tempted to skip over Romans 16 because we can't pronounce all of these names that I'm going to butcher today. But it's all about people. And so everyone in here has a set of relationships uh, that, that have led you to the place that you're at today, some for better, some for worse. And you might call it, uh, for your own story, your spiritual family tree. And some of those people have very intentionally led you to Jesus. Some of those people have intentionally led you away from Jesus. And still some others, you're not really sure how they play out, right? I love thinking through my own spiritual family tree. Whether it be these two guys right here that led me to Jesus in high school um, Chad and Scott, yeah, that's me, the skinny little guy on the left right there after I just pitched a great game. Cap, uh, yeah, I got a good, good picture there. These guys led me to Jesus. They had the courage when I was in eighth grade to share the gospel with me. If you're in here and you're a, a student, think about that. Think about the fact that God might use you to lead somebody to Christ who might pastor a church, you know, that you're in one day. Think about that. Think about the impact about Think, or, it might, or it's this guy right here uh, when I was in college, Andrew, who, who gave me the courage to preach. He, he opened the pulpit to me and said, go for it, brother. And he showed me how to do that. He was the best man in my wedding. We still talk uh, just about every other week. And, 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 and as I was being commissioned and sent out to ministry, this next guy, uh, Ty, uh, he's a pastor in Las Vegas. Um, th this, this, this is the guy that brought me into his life and discipled me to such a degree that I lived with him for a series of like six months or so, he introduced me to my wife, Megan, and he helped guide me in ministry, and then he did the craziest thing of all. He sent me out. He sent me out. He said, hey, I know you're called to ministry. I want to encourage you to pursue that. We don't have anything in Vegas. So you're going to have to go somewhere else. What a loving thing to do, right? But he had the courage to experience that loss of sending out one of his really good friends to go for the kingdom of God. See, you have your own set of relationships that are just like that. This doesn't even mention the impact of the last decade on my life where dozens and dozens of men in this church and outside of this church have deeply impacted my life or the four guys that I'm going on a retreat with this afternoon. Um, it's all about relationships. If the gospel doesn't lead you to deeply invest in other people, you're doing it wrong. 
And so today, this is really what we're all about today. The big idea for today is this. The intentional work of the kingdom with one another is, is what finishes God's work in us. So here's what we get. We get this sweet opportunity, this glimpse into this local church in Rome, um, and, 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 and we get this really human experience about all of these people that Paul uh, had met. And, um, and it's, it's interesting because it's, it's iron sharpening iron relationships, but, but not just spiritual relationships. Paul is getting real emotional and physical needs met through these relationships. They are integrated relationships. So kind of here's how we're going to break down Romans 16 today in three parts. The first one is we're going to meet the core of gospel workers in, 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 in the city of Rome and the churches that are there. Then we're going to hear the warning for gospel workers. He's got a warning for us kind of tucked in here. And they're, we're going to receive this promise to gospel workers. And then at the end of the service today, we're going to receive the benediction that Paul sends out with them. So let's dig into that first part here. We're going to look at the first 16 verses with all of these crazy Roman and Greek names. Uh, and we're going to meet the cast here. Um, so the thing to remember is it's always been about people, like I said. And so we're going to slow down for a second, and we're going to consider some of these individual stories, because the big story is no story without all these smaller stories. Paul takes time to mention by name 27 different people, people who had impacted his life. Some, some stories we know about, and so we don't really have to speculate about their stories, and commentators love to speculate about all the other people. I'm not going to do that today, okay? I'm going to spare you that. Uh, but there's, there's lots of different names here that, that we're going to go through. So let's dig into the first couple verses here. Romans 16, starting in verse 1, he says, I commend you to our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So remember this, Paul himself had never, ever been to Rome before. So these people would have been people that impacted his life in one way or another through personal interaction in another region that he was doing ministry in, or he had heard about them and maybe potentially changed, exchanged some correspondence with them. It seems likely that Phoebe was entrusted with the task of hand-delivering this letter to the church in Rome. Phoebe was a disciple of Jesus. She was probably converted in the city of Corinth when Paul, when Paul was there. Uh, and since her town was, uh, you know, about six miles away, that's our best speculation there. She was a businesswoman of means who was most likely on the way to Rome for other business. Or some people think a lawsuit. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Letters of commendation were common uh, in the ancient world. Basically, it's just a certificate of authenticity. This person is who she says she is. Phoebe's just happened to make it into the Bible, right? <clears throat> and Paul is saying to her, take, take, saying to the church, take care of Phoebe. Give her instant credibility. Treat her as a sister in Christ. Show her hospitality in this major global city. Welcome her into the family because she's used her wealth and influence to impact you in more ways than you'll ever know. The next person that we meet here is Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life, Paul says, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church that's in their house. Priscilla and Aquila, or as Paul uses a nickname for her, Prisca, they, they were close with Paul. 
They're a power team. They're this married couple in the Lord, and they were essentially leaders in the early church who had, been, who had, who had apparently sacrificed deeply on a personal level for Paul in some way that he considered uh, their sacrifice to be vital to his own life. What we know about them from Acts chapter 18 is that they're Jews who are from Italy, uh, and years earlier they were persecuted by Roman leaders because they were, because they were Jews, and, uh, and it was under the emperor Claudius. So they were persecuted, and, and they were, they were kind of sent out, and they, had, they went 750 miles away to the city of Corinth. And guess who just happened to be in the city of Corinth? Paul, right? Paul's preaching. It's where, uh, it's where Phoebe is converted. And, and it was there while they were running from persecution, they linked up with Paul. And here's how they linked up with Paul. They had a common trade. They were all tent makers, right? Uh, and so somewhere in that whole interaction, they became followers of Jesus because Paul's lit up with the gospel. He can't help but tell other people about Jesus, whether they're making tents or they're in the synagogue. And so Paul even lived with them for a while. You never know how God is going to orchestrate your story, do you? You just never know who you're going to interact with and how God's going to use that person in your life and use you in that person's life. So what they do from here is they follow Paul from Corinth to the next city, which is Ephesus. And then they meet this young, dynamic Jewish preacher named Apollos. So he's preaching with power from the Old Testament. People are really hearing what he's saying. He's, he's preaching that a Messiah is coming, and he's really kind of getting after it there. Uh, but he's not yet a converted Christian, is what the book of Acts tells us. So Priscilla, or if he is, he has bad doctrine, rather. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, the married couple in the Lord, they come alongside him, and he's converted through their instruction to, together as a married couple. Ladies, I want you to think about this. God doesn't want to use, don't think that God doesn't want to use you to advance the gospel for one second. There's a reason why Priscilla's name is mentioned first. She's likely a very gifted teacher. She might even have been converted before Aquila. But there's a reason for that order. But, but I love how they, uh, how they are working together as a unit. So what does Apollos go on to do? He goes on to have this dynamic ministry. And Prisca and Aquila keep following Jesus. And they have a church in their house in every city that Jesus sends them to. And eventually, where do they end back up to? They end back up in Rome. And so Paul greets them. I want, you to, I want to pause right uh, real quick and just note the diversity in the church. I'm going to do it in a few ways as we go through this list. But I want you to note the diversity in gender at this point. So Phoebe, she is either single or her husband, if she's married, is most likely not a believer. But she's a very influential person in the church. She's called a servant, diaconos, which is the same word used for deacon in the Bible. Some have said that she held the office of deacon. Others say that that term is used in a general sense because it could be interpreted either way. And it's, this is a sidebar issue, but, but our interpretation is that the pattern in the Bible is male headship in the leadership of God's people. That started in the garden with Adam. It extended throughout the Old Testament history and to the apostles uh, and the deacons that were installed in Acts chapter 6. But I want you to know this. This is a matter of order. It's not a matter of gifting it's not a matter of value. It's not a matter of, of significance. Nearly one-third of the people that Paul mentions are women. Ladies, you have a tremendous impact in the life of New City Church. This church would not be what it is today without you. 
Priscilla is mentioned uh, before her husband as it looks like she's got these incredible gifts, like I said. There are so many influential li- uh, women listed in the life of this church and so many in this church. New City Church, uh, our impact report uh, for last year showed this fascinating statistic to me, that 58% of the leaders in this church are women. Ladies, you are getting after it, discipling others, and I love it. I am so thankful for you. Let's keep going here. Uh, so he says, he goes on, he's listing more people. I'm not going to go into this much detail. You're like, man, I'm never going to get out of here, right? I'm not going to go into that much detail with the rest of these guys. But he says, greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert of Christ in Asia. Could you imagine being the first convert in an entire continent? I mean, some of us are the first Christians in our family, and there's a certain significance about that. I'm one of those people. Uh, Some of us are the only Christian in our workplace. There's a significant pressure that comes with that, a a significant opportunity. And some of us are, you know, the first Christian or the only Christian in a group of friends. Paul recalls it as significant, uh, and I think it's important to note in our own lives, too, if that is your scenario. He says, greet Mary, who's also worked hard for you. Once again, a noted woman working hard for the advancement of the gospel. He says, greet uh, Andronicus and Junia. My kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, they were well known to the apostles, and they were even in Christ before me, Paul says. So likely this is this married couple who were in prison. They were fellow Jews with Paul. That's what he means when he says my kinsmen. Uh, And there's a degree of respect as they were converts before Paul, because what did Paul do uh, to to followers of Jesus before he he was converted? He persecuted them. It's very likely that this couple was persecuted by Paul. Here they're greeting each, each other, right? It's the power of the gospel. He says, greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those who, workers in the Lord, Trephenea and Trephosa. Greet the beloved Perses who has worked hard in the Lord. Hey, if you're pregnant and you're thinking about baby names, here's a list, right? <laughs> well, what, what we know about this list is this, is that many of these names are Greek names of nobility. Some of these names were common names for Roman slaves as well. And it's significant to us that Paul is noting different classes of people because he writes in, in another letter that there's neither slave nor free in the family of God. There's diversity of class in this church. It's not a caste system, right? There's diversity of class in this church as well because that's the power of the gospel. He goes on to say this, greet Rufus. Rufus chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. I I love the humanity of Paul, right? The name Rufus is mentioned one other time in the New Testament. There was this man that met Jesus in a timely way when Jesus had his own, it was, it was, the, it was the hour of Jesus' deepest need. So here's the scene. Jesus was carrying the cross on the Via Della Rosa, as we call it today, which is Latin for the way of the cross, through Jerusalem, out to Golgotha, where he would be crucified. The problem was is that Jesus was so weak that he couldn't carry that like 250-pound cross beam on his cross anymore. And so this man named Simon is appointed to do what? Simon of Cyrene, to carry Jesus' cross for him. And so Simon of Cyrene 
picks up the cross and he carries it to Golgotha and then Jesus is put up on that cross. And we are told that Simon had two sons, Alexander and then also a kid named Rufus. What if this is the same Rufus? What if Rufus's story was, yeah, let me tell you about this day that my dad, we were just watching, there was a, it, was a, it was a Roman execution, just like these things always happen. This one day my dad got called out of the crowd to, to pick up this crossbeam for Jesus, the Messiah. And I just watched that happen. I just knew that that could have been my dad on the cross, but instead, it was Jesus. Do you think his life would have been different? Absolutely. Got Rufus here. I like to think that it was Rufus, the same one. The goal of a diverse church is that there would also be a diversity in race, right? It crosses all barriers. Verse 14 says this Greet, this is a dangerous one. Assian Critus, <laughs> Phlegian, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers. I'm just trying not to end up on YouTube, okay, in a bad way. <laughs> And then greet uh, Philo Logos. I, I love that. I love that because that's, um, that's two Greek words put together. Philo means lover, right? Logos, uh, logos means word. Lover of the word. What a great name. I don't know if this was a nickname for this brother. He just loved God's word or, or that's what his mama called him, but Philo Logos. And then we got Julia, uh, Nereus and his sister and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. So what we notice here is there's also this diversity in race. There are many kinsmen that Paul mentions, meaning Jews, but there are also many Greek and Roman Gentiles that are a part of this church. This church had to be a diverse, had to be a diverse church to be a church in Rome. Rome is the, is the global like capital of the world at this time. Diversity, though we notice, was not the purpose but a byproduct of a unified gospel in a diverse context. That's our aim here. That's our aim as a church. We're not trying to just get diverse as a body ethnically to make ourselves feel better about how the gospel is working in our church, but we should be growing in diversity because we are planted in the most diverse county in Georgia, one of the most diverse counties in the country. And what we need to realize is that in a, in a diverse context, that the cost to commit to the body is different for each and every one of us, depending on our background. And, and that mutual sacrifice should be taken into account and considered as we share life together. For instance, my brothers and sisters that you'll see in the second service today that are coming in to worship, uh, that, are, that are Ghanaian, they are worshiping in their second language as they come. It's a little bit harder of a climb when it's your second language that you're worshiping the Lord in. Some of our Hispanic brothers and sisters and Asian brothers and sisters have the same exact thing that, that is a climb for them. Some of us are used to different styles of worship or different styles of preaching or different government structures in a church or different kinds of discipleship structures. The goal of a diverse church is that no one gets their way all the time. Amen? It's easy to say. It's hard to do. That all of us have to sacrifice to live as the family of God together. Friends, I want to encourage you to keep this in mind the next time that you feel the need to prioritize your own preference. Sometimes we just need to let go of things for the sake of the unity of the gospel. 
And so what happens is a lot of times we jump things up, like we talked about two weeks ago, we jump things up to top-tier issues. If you've only got top-tier issues and your convictions, there's, there's probably a problem there, right? We have to work hard to surrender and sacrifice, and we're not losing the gospel, right? We're not losing the truth, but we have to work hard to sacrifice for the sake of the unity of the body of Christ, which is the greatest apologetic to a lost and dying world that's around us. They look in, and they say, wow, how are these people together? It's because of the gospel. It's because the Lord has led us in his own humility to be humble and surrender to our own desires in every way that we can so that we can be a people of God that are unified. He goes on to say this, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. It's funny, I, I lived in Indiana. We had this greeter at our church. I'll never forget him, Dave Steenbarger. He was an elder in the church. Uh, he was this endearing older man that made it his ambition to learn the name of every single person in an 800-person church. Bold, right? But he didn't stop there, right? After he learned your name, he would give a kiss to each person that walked in. Most of the time, it was to children and women. <laughs> I, but I can recall a couple times where I got a little wet one slapped on me too. And as you can imagine, you know, you're new to the church. The second time you come in, this older man knows your name and he gives you a kiss, right? Our context is a little different than the first century church. So it feels a little awkward to picture Bill Golden, or as I call him, Billy G, and uh, Joe Brand giving you a holy kiss as you walk in. Now, if this is not awkward to you, the rest of us are trying to tell you something, right? Um, most of all, what I, here's what I want you to take away from these 16 verses of names. That Paul really needed people in his life. He really needed people. I think sometimes we imagine this theological factory that's just kind of machine-gunning theology at these churches, right? But he was a real man with real needs um, and had real friends. We all need one another. We all grow from committed, intentional, discipling relationships with one another. And that just happens to be the bread and butter of this church. I was thinking this week, you know, when does, when does disciple making start? So we're sitting around the dinner table this week, and I had all four of my kids there, Megan, obviously. And, and I said, I was kind of telling them about what I was preaching on this weekend. I said, you know, a way to look at it is that everybody's got a Paul and everybody's got a Timothy in their life, right? Everybody's got at least one person who's pouring into their life, that's holding them accountable, that's speaking the hard truths of Jesus into their life. And then everyone's got someone that they're, at least someone that they're called to invest their lives into in an intentional way that leads others to live like Jesus. And so I asked the kids that are uh, 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 age range 7 to 13, I said, hey, who, who are your Pauls and Timothys in your own life? And it was so beautiful to hear them quickly recount the people that were investing into their lives. You know who those people were? Many of you in this room. It's really humbling to be a pastor and to see your own church that, that God has called you to pastor discipling your own children. It's a beautiful thing. I wouldn't want it any other way. But the other cool thing was is they were talking about some of the younger kids in the church that they had felt a, a desire to disciple and to invest into intentionally. It's a beautiful thing. The mission of disciple-making cannot start too early in our lives. So I want you to consider this as we kind of keep going here. Who are the gospel workers that have shaped your life? What would it look like for you, maybe this afternoon, to just sit down with a piece of paper and to just recall the family tree that led to your conversion, that led to you being introduced to Jesus, that led to you being in this room today? And what would it look like for you to give thanks for those people? To give thanks for those people and then to also desire 
to emulate what they have given to you to others? What would it look like for this next season of your life to maybe be more intentional than ever about considering what Jesus has called you to give away of himself as you seek to make disciples? The second thing that Paul does here as he kind of wraps up this letter is is that he gives them a warning. He gives a warning to gospel workers here. You know, I think sometimes it's hard to know who God has called us to link up with in the gospel, right? I mean, I want to have deep relationships where I can write a letter where I'm talking about, like, people that have saved my life, people that have been like a mother to me. But sometimes it's hard to know who you can trust. Sometimes it's hard to know if someone has pure motives and agenda, right? And so Paul kind of addresses that a little bit here. Here's what he says in verses 17 through 19. He says, I appeal to you, brothers this series of churches in Rome, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but rather they serve their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So what he's saying is this, is not everyone who's dressed like a sheep is really a sheep. Paul's saying that sometimes you will encounter metaphorical wolves in the church. And the first sign is that they start to cause division in things that were otherwise put together. And in, and in causing that division, stirring uh, up those obstacles, they actually are, are, are teaching and showing a different doctrine in doing that, that it's unnecessary and ultimately is a selfish pursuit. Of, uh, uh, and, and actually, the enemy is the one that's kind of behind that scheme. And so the question for us, uh, really, well, the warning for us is this, is don't be surprised by that. It's going to happen. If you think for one second the enemy is not going to try to weasel his way into this church, into the relationships that are here, and try to wedge in between you and your local church, you're crazy. He's going to try to do it. So what's the filter for us? And it's, it's a warning, right? Because, I mean, all of us can get off track, right? All of us can lose our focus. So what are these filters for fellowship that he talks about? I'll just mention three things quickly. The, the, first, the first thing that you can say is this, is does it agree with the word of God? He says it's they're teaching contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. So a simple thing that you can ask yourself when someone brings up a kind of a wedge issue that's causing division in your relationships, whether that's kind of at a top-down level or an individual kind of relationship, a simple thing that you can ask when someone brings an idea, maybe a ministry philosophy or anything that they want you, they want to press upon your conscience as gospel is this, is it in the word of God? Now, to be able to judge things according to the Word of God, what do you have to know? The Word of God, right? And so this is why discipleship is so important, going deep in God's Word, because you're able to discern this does not line up with God's Word. But if you just trust other people to always read you God's Word and teach you God's Word, you're, you're going to be uh, susceptible to more naivety when it comes to these kinds of things. So the question you have to ask is, you know, does this agree with God's word. And if it doesn't, friend, you can simply let it go. You can simply let it go. And sometimes that's exactly what we have to do. It doesn't mean that there's this huge conflict and we have to bring in the elders and Matthew 18. Sometimes you just let things go and you let the space tell the story. Second thing is this. 
The question you ask is this, does it bring glory to Jesus or something else? He says that these people that create division are after really their own appetite. So is the focus of the teaching, the idea, or the, the ministry direction, is it most about Jesus or is it most about something else? Is something stirring up division through an opinion that is detracting from the glory of Christ and making it more about themselves? He says, you can let that go. You can avoid that. If it's not bringing fame to Jesus, let it go. The third thing he says is this. Does it promote goodness? He's saying, I want you to be wise and experienced in things that flow from the goodness of God and more novice in things that flow from evil. So friends, much of the time we can spend so much time trying to spot the counterfeit ideas of the world. We, we are hunting down all these ideas, we're reading all these news, news articles and these books that are really talking about how twisted and corrupt things are, and what we neglect is actually studying the real thing. You see, you know what the Secret Service does to detect counterfeit currency? Here, you would think their approach was to be like, hey, give me every counterfeit bill you've ever seen before. You know, like Jimmy Bedford's when I was a sophomore in high school, right, that he bought, this is a crazy story, this kid bought all of this uh, like lunch stuff for us, and it was all counterfeit currency. He could have went to prison. He didn't. He just got detention, I think, but it was bad. Um, but, like, but the way the Secret Service teaches people to address counterfeit currency is, that, is they learn the real thing so deeply that it's easy to spot something that's a fake. That's what we're called to do as believers. Know the real thing, the false counterfeit ideas and doctrines will be glowing uh, when we know the real thing. Um, <clears throat> so he's basically saying this. Others are always going to be coming around with some kind of new doctrine or new thing to consider. If it leads you away from the solid foundation that you've received in your local church, or it leads you from Jesus as the focal point, you should have reason for concern, and you should distance yourself from that person, that idea, that teaching. If a church, fellowship, you know, community, or group doesn't make a point to get to Jesus early and often, it should be a red flag to us. Amen? All right, the last thing we're going to wrap up with is this. Is there's this promise for gospel workers in Romans 16, 20. And I love how Paul closes out this letter. He reminds us of the amazing hope that we have in Jesus. He connects the work of Jesus to the promise in Genesis chapter 3. The, 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 the promise in Genesis 3 is this, is that Adam and Eve had just sinned, and, and, and uh, our Father in heaven is dishing out consequences to everyone because of their sin. And one of the, one of the blessings in, that's kind of mixed into the consequence is that, uh, is that he, looks, he looks to Eve and to the serpent. He says, listen, the offspring of Eve is going to eventually crush the head of the serpent, right? Like your, your, your heel's going to be struck, that offspring is. So, you know, what, what hurts worse, a heel strike or, or, a, or, or a blow to the head, right? A heel strike hurts less. So he says, Jesus is going to suffer. The offspring is going to suffer, but Satan is going to be eventually crushed. So Paul hasn't mentioned Satan not one time in the book of Romans. And I'm thinking, Paul, you left some stuff out, brother, right? But the reason is, is because the whole story of Romans uh, 1 through 16 is telling about how Jesus Christ is going to triumph over Satan. Here's what, here's what the, the scripture says. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, church. That's what he says to these Roman Christians. That's what he says to us. 
All of us have seasons and days and even moments where it feels like the enemy, that Satan himself is winning in our families, in our own stories, in our own journeys. And I want to close with three tenses of Satan's destruction. Let's consider this. There is a past tense of Satan's destruction. Satan has been crushed in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Here's what Colossians 2 says. He says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, Jesus set aside nailing it to the cross. And in nailing that to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, the schemes of the enemy, the schemes of Satan, in other words, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Jesus. And so now the enemy, basically the, the death coupled with the resurrection of Jesus was the final blow for the enemy. But the enemy has not been, um, his, his, his presence and influence has not been eradicated from the face of the earth, right? The enemy can tempt, he can influence, but he can no longer deceive and condemn believers. His only ability to condemn is when we allow that to happen, Christian. Romans 8, 33 and 34, when Paul's, he's rattling off the litany of the benefits that we have in Jesus, he says this, it is God who justifies. Who then can condemn? Believer, you are no longer condemned because of what Jesus has done for you. The head of the serpent has been crushed in the resurrection. Present, the present tense of, of the crushing of Satan's head. Satan is being crushed by those who choose to armor up in Christ. So believers in Jesus crush the head of the devil when we believe and deploy the word of God in our own lives. It's what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 4, right? The enemy tries to tempt him in all of these ways as Jesus begins his, memory, his ministry. And, and how does Jesus refute the devil? Through reciting what? God's word back to him, Right? He shuts him down. He doesn't even entertain the temptations. Revelation 12, 11 says this. They, the church, have conquered him, the devil, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives unto death. Church, we need to quit trying to knife fight the devil, right? Crush him with God's word through God's miraculous work in your life as you recall it in the world. Ephesians 6 goes on to say this, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but instead we wrestle against rulers and authorities, all of the schemes of the enemy, the, uh, uh, the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Wow, what a mysterious phrase, right? Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, against demonic activity, you say. It says, therefore, how do, you, how do you armor up, right? You got to take up the armor of God that you may be able to withstand, to crush the enemy in the evil day. And having done all, the job is to do what? Stand. To stand firm on what? On God's word, on what God has said to be true of you. Take up the armor of God, which is what? All of the ways that God's word is your power and strength. That's the whole thing that the armor of God is about in Ephesians 6. The helmet of your salvation, what's that doing? It's guarding your mind from the evil schemes of the enemy. The, the breastplate of righteousness, it's guarding your heart 
from your own temptation to be self-righteous and reliant. The shield of faith, it's extinguishing the darts of accusations of shames, maybe from your, even, your, your past life, right, before Jesus. The sword of the Spirit, it's giving you a response like Jesus to the accusations of the enemy. The shoes of the gospel of peace, making you a person eager to share your hope. And everything is held together in our lives with the belt, right? The belt of truth. The, the believers actually see that everything that Jesus has said about our lives is actually true. And that's what holds us together. Paul said it like this in 2 Timothy 2. He says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And listen to this. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. Everyone that's not a follower of Jesus is trapped up in the snare of the devil, he says, after being captured by him to do his will. Doesn't that lead you to think differently about people that aren't in Christ? That they've been captured by the enemy to do his will. And the only freedom that we have is the eternal, resurrected word of life, which is Jesus Christ himself. And this Bible testifies to who Jesus is. That's why this is significant. He is the word. He came and he dwelt among us. And so now this word is our story. And lastly, the future tense. Satan's influence will be eternally eradicated when Jesus returns. Friends, now while we, 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 we hear of this victory, we still battle. We believe that Jesus' foot is on the neck of Satan. But the bark is so tempting, it is so shaming, and it is so condemning that we often fall into his schemes. I want you to leave this place and this letter this morning fully convinced that in Christ, nothing can eternally touch your life that Jesus will not use to transform you more and more into his image. Nothing is wasted. And why? It's because of what 1 Corinthians 15 says. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Right now, church, Jesus is reigning, and the final act of his reign on this side of glory is to forever crush the devil. Until then, we eagerly await believing and speaking about our Savior as he patiently saves those who are lost. What a sweet promise for us this morning that we have power even today, but we long for the day when the influence is gone forever. That's how Paul closes out this letter because he knows we need that truth, that promise, that encouragement. And my prayer is that it's encouraged you this morning. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.